Achroiso. Hello and welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics and love. I'm Danny, the podcast host, and this episode is all about the Welsh language. I'm joined today by Victoria Noble, a linguist and researcher and a fellow superfan of Welsh, who's here to introduce the language, its history, its status today and what it means to her and her work. Well, I am delighted to have Victoria Noble joining me from York today. Now, Victoria is a PhD student there at the University of York, very much in the final stages of this great doctoral journey. So I'm especially grateful that she's made time to come along today and talk to me about one language that she studies and I dare say loves a great deal. So she is within linguistics a semanticist. She works in the sort of subfield of semantics, but also looking at syntax. And hopefully we can get into her research, her specialism, and its relationship to the language that we're going to be talking about today. But first things first, um, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? How are you doing? Hello. I am doing very well today. It is a wee bit chilly up here in York. It's been very cold and rainy, but other than that, I'm very good. I'm very happy. I can just picture that in my mind. Uh, York, it does get a bit cold, but it's beautiful, I think, in autumn and winter. It wears winter well. So, for first-time listeners of A Language I Love Is, I think it's best if I just run through the basics, the format of this whole show. A Language I Love Is is a chance for us to get to know you, Victoria, and also to get to know one language that you've decided to talk about today through a format that doesn't change. The format is that we're going to build up a little bit of a language profile, introduce this language, talk about where you can find its speakers, a bit about its history, a bit about its sounds or its grammar, whatever you think is uh, most important for us to know. And then we'll move on to three questions that I ask all my guests. The first one is, what is your relationship to this language? And you know, why have you decided to talk about it today? The second is, what is something that you love about this language? This, I often find, is the most difficult thing for linguists to talk about because we just love the language in general, but I have to limit you to one thing today. And thirdly, what is one thing that you would like the audience to know about? What is one thing that is a kind of parting point that we're going to end the show with? So, First off, let's answer the main question. Vic, what is a language that you love? A language I love is Welsh, also known natively as Cymraeg. Excellent, Welsh. Now, this, I dare say, is a fairly well-known language, especially because it is a language that we might find within the United Kingdom, a country with a global footprint. But first things first, let's unpack a little bit about the history of Welsh and especially its, shall we say, linguistic context. Because even though Welsh is a language that we can find in the United Kingdom, it's different to English. So let's put Welsh in its proper genealogical context. What kind of a language is Welsh? Welsh is a insular Celtic language. It is part of the Britonic branch of Celtic, which also includes Breton, which is spoken in the Brittany region of northern France, Cumbric, which went extinct in the 12th century, and also related to Cornish, which went extinct in the 18th century, but is now a revived language. So Welsh out of the Britonic branch of Celtic is probably the most widely spoken and the most widely known. 
So we have Britonic. We have this little subgroup of languages, uh, some members of which are faring better than others. Cornish really only exists as a revived language. Breton is struggling across the channel in France, you know, against the serious you know, linguistic heft of French. Beyond Britonic, though, what are the other close relatives of Welsh? Yeah, so that's the Goidelic branch, and that includes Irish, which is spoken on the island of Ireland, Manx, which is in the Isle of Man, and Scots Gaelic, which is in Scotland. Importantly, Scots Gaelic is not the same as Scots. That's very different, and I believe you already have an episode on that one already. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure you're also interested in this branch of Celtic languages as well. Hugely. I love and I'm deeply fascinated by Celtic languages personally. So this is a passion that we both share, but I think for different reasons, which is excellent. Hopefully we'll get to unpack you know, both of our sources of interests today. But really the main point that we should emphasise here is that Welsh, like these other languages that you've just mentioned, is a Celtic language. And this is related but only distantly to English. So they're quite different. If we were to wind back the clock, if we were to go back to, say, the early medieval period, we have uh, Welsh speakers or what became Welsh uh, on the island of Great Britain. We have, say, Old English speakers. They're not really going to understand basically anything. And that is a situation that has maintained to this day. Welsh is in contact with English, but it's very different to English. So having given a little bit of the ancestry of the Welsh language, now let's zoom back into Welsh. Where can we find speakers of Welsh? That's not a trivial question, right? So talk us through, where can we find speakers of the Welsh language today? Yeah, so Welsh is unsurprisingly native to the country of Wales. And if anyone's listening and isn't entirely sure where Wales is, it's situated to the west of the island of Great Britain. Even though Welsh is native to Wales, it's not the only place that it is spoken. There is a dialect of Welsh that is spoken in Patagonia, in Argentina. The speakers of Welsh who moved to Patagonia in the 1800s did so to protect their culture, their language and their heritage. So there are at least four dialects in the country of Wales and at least one in Argentina. There are other speakers of Welsh dotted around the world. There are obviously some in England, there's some in America, but culturally with people who speak Welsh on a daily basis, you're looking at Wales and Argentina, Patagonia. Mm -hmm. Understood. And within the country of Wales, zooming in specifically to this part of Great Britain, what's the distribution of Welsh speakers like? Are there areas where it's more concentrated than others? We don't want to give the impression that if as soon as you cross the border, you're going to hear Welsh. That's not the case, right? No, unfortunately not. Despite Welsh being native to the land of Wales, it's a minority language there. And it is spoken more in the extremities of the country, so in the north uh, and more towards the coast and in the south. And depending on where you look, the numbers of Welsh speakers in Wales can differ quite dramatically. So according to the 2021 census, there was 538,300 Welsh speakers who reported themselves as either first language or second language speakers. And this might sound like a lot of people, but it is only about 17.8% of the Welsh population. Other estimates 
can range up to about just short of 900,000, and that's in the annual population survey of 2003. But again, this is only about 30% of the population of Wales. So either way you look at it, it's a minority language and the dominant language is English. You mentioned the extremities of Wales. That makes sense. These are the areas that are further away from England, essentially, and from the spread of English. But nonetheless, languages can coexist very easily. It doesn't have to be the case that English has come to dominate uh, the language of Wales. So I think it's very important that we unpack and dig into the historical context. Why has this happened, that Welsh has ended up a minority language within the country? Let's talk about that. What might be some of the key historical points that have created this linguistic situation today? So, A lot of the history of the Welsh language is tied up in the history of the Welsh people and and Welsh culture. And the Welsh language specifically has had a very long legal history with its relation to England, to the UK. Welsh was spoken natively by the people who lived in the multiple kingdoms of Wales, so earlier forms of Welsh as well. And The most pivotal point in the legal history for the Welsh language came around 1536. And this is where King Henry VIII of England, the man who is famous for having six wives and beheading two of them, he passed the Acts of Union. What this did was incorporate Wales into the Kingdom of England. And this meant that the English legal system was applied to Wales. And this included banning the Welsh language from being used in public administration and the legal system. And it banned those who spoke Welsh from entering government and holding government office. So we start to see not just a suppression of the Welsh people, which has been going on culturally for a while, which I won't speak on much not being a Welsh person myself and the hurt it can cause. It was a long, long time before Welsh started to see some legal recognition as a language. Do you have any idea how long it might have been? No, no, no. So bear in mind, Welsh has no legal recognition in the courts. People were still speaking it as oral tradition, but no legal recognition. It wasn't until 1942 that any part of this law was repealed. And this was the Welsh Courts Act. And essentially what it did was it allowed people to speak Welsh in courts only if they were a disadvantage if they spoke English. So we've gone from banning Welsh in the legal system. 406 years later, you're allowed to speak Welsh only if it disadvantaged you not to. So not a lot of progress in 406 years, but there was a little bit more progress that happens in the 60s. So the first Welsh Language Act was passed and this allowed limited legal rights for the Welsh language. And this is where courts were officially allowed to start having forms in Welsh and start doing some more legal proceedings in Welsh. So for context, that is 431 years after the banning of Welsh in the legal system. Finally, in 1993, which is only 30 years ago. So this is living memory for a lot of people who are Welsh speakers, is that the Welsh Language Act was passed, the second one. 
And this allowed Welsh and English to be treated equally in the conduct of public business in Wales. And what this did was it essentially protected Welsh and allowed Welsh to actually be freely used. This comes a little bit to more of a happy ending where Welsh is now recognised as an official language of Wales. This is shockingly recent that this happened. This was 2011. So it's taken us 475 years to go from the initial banning of the Welsh language to officially recognising it as an official language of Wales. That is a long way. <laughs> 475 years. That is incredible. It's a very, very long time. So many generations that have lived within that legal framework. And I think this raises a really interesting point, all of this history, is that languages can suffer not only by the sword, but also by the pen. The history of England and Wales is not just a story of conquest, of England conquering by force of arms, but also then passing laws, laws that just limit and constrain and essentially, you know, remove the Welsh language from public life. So this is yeah extremely important then to also focus on the on the legal history too. What then is the status then of Welsh within Wales today? We've talked a little bit about the politics. So thanks to things like political devolution, so Wales has more power, it has more independence from Westminster. But moving aside from the politics and the law, what might be the status in terms of perception and in terms of people's attitudes towards the Welsh language? So the perceptions of the Welsh language will change depending on who you are, where you're based. In Wales itself, there is a an effort from the Welsh government to put lots of money and resources into the Welsh language to get more people to learn it, not just as a native language, but second language learners. And we see this happening all the time. We see bilingual road signs, we see bilingual shop signs all over Wales. We see TV shows, films, radio, literature, all in Welsh. Some of this media has also made it outside of Wales, right? So I live in York and the Rugby World Cup that was just on in September, October, I could get Welsh commentary on all the rugby like very easily on terrestrial TV. So it's not a language that is hidden anymore. There are efforts to bring it to an equal of English because even though it's legally equal to English, it doesn't mean it's culturally that way all the time. Uh, and it's getting better, I think. The other things you'll start to see all across Wales are there's Welsh medium schools. So this is where Welsh is the language for learning and English is a second language. I was recently in Chester. I went to the zoo. It was really nice. And there were a bunch of school trips there. And a lot of the kids, they were speaking English to each other. But when they spoke to their teachers, they were speaking Welsh and the teachers would reply in Welsh. And I spoke to my Welsh friend about it who went to a Welsh medium school and she said that when she was growing up that essentially if you asked a teacher anything in English they'd say to you in Welsh please and wouldn't answer you until you at least attempted it in Welsh. That was really cool to hear and to actually see in practice. There are other ways that Welsh is growing in users as well. So Welsh universities are a beacon for Welsh language learning. One of them, which is really good, is Cardiff University. I was looking at their website and they offer all of their services to students, student support services 
in English and in Welsh. And every student at that university is entitled to free Welsh lessons, which is really cool. I, I would also like to clarify, even though we have said that Welsh is a minority language, there are definitely pockets of Wales where that is not the case, where the communities speak Welsh as their first language on a daily basis. And to those communities and those people, English is the second language or the language they don't use quite often. So when we say Welsh is a minority language, that's looking at Wales as a whole. Yes, that's a really good point to emphasise. Yes, we obviously taking Wales as a whole, the, the distribution is not looking great. But nonetheless, there are some areas and these are beacons for, for learning Welsh today. Um, I was in one quite recently, actually, earlier this year. I was in North Wales. We were staying in Clandidnot, which is not very Welsh speaking. But if you move further west, if you get to places like Bangor, incredible. You know, I was in Carnarvon. I was waiting at a bus stop. Everybody around me was speaking Welsh. I bought something from the shop there in the castle and, you know, the lady did everything to me in Welsh. It just automatically, it came so naturally. So that was really, really heartening to see. But everything you've just said here, all of these moves to revitalise Welsh, they're so important because fundamentally what we need to do is change attitudes. We need to change attitudes. It's very, very fair. Even if you are a proud Welsh person, even if you care very much about the history and the culture, if you don't value the language and if you don't think other people will value you when you're speaking it, you're not going to speak it. So, yeah, extremely important. What are some of the difficult attitudes that Welsh still faces today? Where are they coming from? Yeah, a lot of the negative attitudes towards the Welsh language, unfortunately, do come from English people. And you will also find some examples of people with Welsh heritage who deny their heritage and deny their language. I have a list of some lovely quotes from the English tabloids and media personnel that are actually quite unpleasant. So if you are a Welsh person or a Welsh speaker listening to this, I'm very sorry. Uh, Some of these are not very nice quotes. So one very infamous one that comes from the Times in 1866. Keep in mind, this was around the time when the community of Welsh speakers left to go to Patagonia. So this was published in the Times. They said, The Welsh language is the curse of Wales. Its prevalence and the ignorance of English have excluded and even now exclude the Welsh people from civilization. It's like civilization to say that. I mean, if I was a Welsh person, I would reclaim the phrase the curse of Wales because that's kind of badass, but it's not nice for it to have been said. Um, And you might think 1866, this was over 150 years ago. We've come a long way. No. So 2011, this was the year that Welsh was officially recognised as a language of Wales. So we have a couple of quotes, one from a man called Roger Lewis, who is writing a book review for the Daily Mail. He described Welsh as an appalling and moribund monkey language, which is really not great. And Jeremy Clarkson in 2011 said in The Sun, I think we're fast approaching the time when the United Nations should start to think seriously about abolishing other languages. What's the point of Welsh, for example? All it does is provide a silly mere pull around which a bunch of hotheads can get all nationalistic. The one with Jeremy Clarkson, this quote, is 
not great, but it also points to not just dislike of the Welsh language, but the Welsh people. So I think this also talks a lot around cultural identity and language being interconnected and people insulting language as a way to insult the people. This needs a lot of work to repair the imbalance between these two languages. And it's, well, currently it's it's the Welsh who are doing the heavy lifting. I really don't think that the English, because the UK is a very divided country, we don't learn so much about the history of Wales in England. We don't learn about the damage that the English have done to the Welsh language and the Welsh people. And we just have so many awful stereotypes. One is that, that Welsh doesn't have any vowels. What? I mean, <laughs> what? Of course, it, listen to it. Well, that just shows that they haven't listened to it. Perhaps they've just only seen the, you know, the road signs. And yes, okay, Welsh orthography, the writing system, is different to English. It absolutely has vowels, both written and spoken. Where is this coming from, these attitudes? Just nonsense about the language. Your comment about road signs was really interesting because in 2004, James May, friend of Jeremy Clarkson, who did Top Gear, called bilingual road signs baffling and dangerous. As you said, it's not on the Welsh people to get the reputation of the Welsh language to be more favourable in England. It should be on the English people to, you know, respect Welsh. But this comment that James May did, the BBC defended it and said it's just British humour, which is baffling to me that as recently as 2004, our leading media defends these attitudes. And yeah, from a purely from a linguistic point of view, this is deeply confusing to me because Welsh orthography is also fantastic. It's extremely systematic. And I think that languages that are in glass houses should not throw stones. English orthography is a hot early modern mess. Uh, whereas Welsh writing, I find extremely systematic. If we're taking as our goal that the writing system of a language should match one sound to one way of writing that sound, then Welsh does that extremely well. It's extremely systematic. It's just different to the way that English does it. Yeah, it is. And one of the super systematic things that Welsh orthography does, which I think a lot of your listeners might not be aware of, is it represents mutation in the writing system. Ah, mutation. You mentioned the M word. Fantastic. That's a fascinating bit of Welsh grammar, really the key to unlocking so much of the way that Welsh works. Can you um, briefly introduce what a mutation is? So mutation is not a negative thing about Welsh. It sounds like a negative word. It's not. Uh, mutation in the linguistic sphere is where the pronunciation of a word changes in certain contexts. Now, it's not necessarily just how sounds change in certain contexts. So in English, you'll say like cats and dogs, where the plural changes pronunciation depending on the sound before. Mutation is more grammatically influenced in that words can change their pronunciation depending on their grammatical positioning. So if it follows a certain article like the, or if it follows numbers, or if it follows prepositions. So one example in Welsh is the word for girl, which is merch. And if you want to say five girls, you can say pimpofrek. Um, I do apologise on my pronunciation, by the way, as I am not a native speaker. I did consult 
a Welsh friend who tried to help me, so hopefully she's proud of me. But essentially, what you hopefully will have heard is that merch changed to perch after the numerals. And this is changing because it's a feminine noun in this grammatical environment. And this is systematic across Welsh. And this is something that is integral to Welsh grammar. It's something that you absolutely have to get to grips with if you're learning this language. I think ultimately, and I'm speaking from my limited experience here, but also the experience of people who speak Welsh, it is very learnable. It's very systematic. It's something that you can get the hang of. So Welsh, for example, has two genders. It has a masculine and a feminine. And you just learn that if, you know, the feminine nouns trigger this mutation and the masculine nouns don't. So it's something like, I don't know, the word for small in Welsh is, I think, bach. A small man, it would be a din bach, whereas a small woman would be something like a gwraig vach, something vach, we're changing in the beginning. And that's something that's extremely systematic, and you just pick it up as you would any other bit of grammar. Crucially, though, from the socio-historical perspective, English doesn't have it. So it's feared, it's scary, ah, the mutations are Welsh, but really I think it does need to be demystified from the English perspective. It's just grammar. Yeah, it is. And grammatical changes based on grammatical gender is not unheard of, right? So Spanish does it, you know, different articles. So you have like L and La, but it just so happens the way Welsh does it just looks different. Different is not bad. Different is not good. It's just different. That brings me very nicely on to the first of my three questions that I ask all my guests. And this one is now turning away from the Welsh language in general and then turning it back to yourself. I would just like to ask, really, what's your relationship to the Welsh language? You've been very upfront about this. You're not Welsh. You are not a native speaker of this language, but you've come to it over the course of your life and the course of your academic career. So just unpack that. What What is the story with you in Welsh and what does this language mean to you? Yeah, so I am not a native speaker of Welsh. I'm not Welsh. I'm not even an L2 speaker of Welsh. So why do I like this language? Why do I care? Why am I not just like those people I quoted earlier, just thinking Welsh is a silly language? It all stems back to going to university and happening to be friends with Welsh people who spoke Welsh. When you're at university and when you've got friends, sometimes you tease friends for things all the time. And, you know, I probably did tease my Welsh friends about being Welsh, about speaking Welsh, because I just grew up in a culture of English. I did my undergraduate degree in linguistics and I ended up doing one of my final essays in my third year on Welsh. At that point, I thought my connection with Welsh is done, dusted. So I carried on. I did my master's. I came to my dissertation and I was like, not even thinking about Welsh. When I was doing my dissertation, I'd started to become interested in counting and countability and how languages count things. And I looked a lot at Arabic and the way Arabic counts things. And what I look at is something called a singulative collective. And I'll come back to what that is in a minute. But all the literature started mentioning Welsh and saying that Welsh also had this unusual construction. So I was like, oh, I'll hit up my Welsh friends. And I ended up speaking to them about it. And it was really interesting. And I ended up looking at Welsh grammars. And it just started a, a love 
of all things Welsh because Welsh countability and Welsh counting systems, like other Celtic systems, are interesting. Singulative collective. We know this is not singular and plural, which people are going to be more familiar with. Can you briefly explain what do these terms mean? Yeah, so a in English, uh, I'm using English as the example language, we have a singular plural, and this is well-known, so you can say stuff like girl, girls, right? So the plural, you add an ending on. In Welsh, this happens as well, right? So we said earlier the word for girl is mech, and the plural is mechhed, right? So ending makes it plural. So for some nouns in Welsh kind of the opposite is seen so the long form is actually the singular an example of this would be quiet which means ducks in the plural you add a little suffix on the end to get hoeden and that means one duck so the singular is the short form in the singular plural contrast but in the singulative collective contrast the singular is the long form what is actually really interesting about this is it's prevalent in welsh it appears in Breton and in Cornish. So it's in the Bretonic branch of Celtic. It doesn't appear in the Goidelic branch, as far as I'm aware. That makes me personally very excited because then you can bring in historical linguistics, which is what I do. You can talk about where this comes from. But let's keep it to you for today. I can talk about Welsh historical linguistics any time of the day. But let's narrow it down. What role does this play in your doctoral research? Yeah. So my doctoral research looks not just a marking of things that are singular and things that are plural, but how these combine with numerals and how these things happen cross-linguistically. So this singulative collective that appears in Welsh, it's very systematic. It tends to appear on nouns that denote things that come in groups. So things like seeds, things like insects, vegetables and small animals. So duck, it's a small animal, right? But you also get it on piscod, which is fish, piscodon, one fish, and also for mouse and mice. So mouse is chlygodon and mice is chlygod, right? So it's very systematic where it happens. What that means is there seems to be something in how we interact with the world, at least a perception of how we interact with the world, with how things come in groups, that is influencing Welsh grammar, right? Because these things that come in groups are the things that have this grammatical shift where the plural is, let's say, the default word and the singular is derived. And just to put it in a bit more context, I mentioned Arabic does this. The thing that's really interesting is that the Welsh language only has collective singulative. You can't pluralize it again. But the Arabic version, you can. So shajar is trees, shajara is one tree, and shajarat, pluralized again, trees. So the question is, why does Arabic do it or why doesn't Welsh do it? So it's all to do with countability, counting individual things, things coming in groups. And how do languages just treat these concepts? is the idea. Fantastic. That's so fascinating. And I love anything like this project that is intrinsically comparative. You're comparing these two languages, which are not related, we should say. There's no connection, there's no causal connection between why Arabic and Welsh should have them. These are not related languages. But despite that, they are 
structurally surprisingly similar in many, many ways. There is literature out there that talks about the surprising similarities. So some of the similarities is this collective singulative thing. Neither Welsh or Arabic have an indefinite article. So there's no word for a, as in like a cat. Both Welsh and Arabic are VSO languages. So that's where the canonical order is verb, subject, object. So you don't say John kissed Bill. In Welsh, it would be kissed John Bill. And in classical Arabic, it is the same. And this canonical word order represents 9% of the world languages. A lot of them are not European. So why Welsh and other Celtic languages have this word order? Actually very interesting. It's time now for the second question, which is, simply put, what is something that you love about this language? Really could be anything. You have free reign, but tell us something that just makes you go, ah, cool. Yeah, so as I've already said, Welsh is one of the focuses of my PhD. So on a purely intellectual level, Welsh is just cool, right? Because it's got so many features that are not like English and not like many of the European languages that surround it. But I think in my heart, I am a person of the people. And what I really do love about the Welsh language is that it is a language of resistance. And I believe that the Welsh National Anthem talks about resistance. We've talked a little bit about how it's been suppressed in the legal system. We've talked a little bit the attitudes towards the Welsh language by the English. And I think what I just love about the Welsh language is that it's just still used despite all this. It survived as an oral tradition despite its uh, suppression. The Welsh people continue to use it despite the overbearing influence of English. And I just think that's really cool and in many ways a poster child for minority languages because you just keep going and keep doing it and it will one day be culturally respected as much as English. As far as I'm aware, the Welsh government have a plan to have a million speakers of Welsh in Wales by 2050. Personally, I hope to be one of them. I won't necessarily be in Wales, so I might not count towards that statistic, but I can help in my best possible way. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I, I want to be part of that million as well. I absolutely do. And let's move yeah, to Wales. Let's move to Wales. Oh, hey, if they offer me a job, I would. I would I'd be there in a heartbeat. Alas, I have to move you on to the third and final question, which is very simply, what is a parting point that you would like to leave us with today? What is something that you want us all to know about Welsh? Yeah, so I think a lot of what I will be saying here won't be controversial to you or the people listening, right? Because the people listening to this podcast, you and I, we like languages, right? You and me, we are linguists. We understand and care about linguistic diversity. But what I think I would like people to know about Welsh is simply, it's not dead. It's not dying. It's not a weird, strange language that doesn't have vowels. It's not dangerous. It's just a language. With that, I would like to say that I understand that Welsh is 
integral to a lot of people's Welsh identity. And I am not a Welsh person. I do not speak Welsh and I can't speak for the experiences of Welsh people. But what I will say is that I think as an English person, it is my responsibility to ensure that Welsh is seen as equal to English in the United Kingdom, at least partially my responsibility. You know, these quotes that we had from people, these are things I've seen in the wild, these anti-Welsh language sentiments. So I was on TikTok the other day, like, you know, your standard 30-year-old woman, and uh, I was watching a live stream, and it was a Welsh speaker who was talking about the language, what it meant to them, and it was just really interesting. And people in the comments were saying horrible things are saying it's a stupid language this that, and the other and I've got one quote that I've got in my notes here they called it a sims language which is just not nice and me being you know the Welsh lover the linguist I am I was straight in the comments like did you know it's actually this 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 and this it's a real language the Welsh speaking person they were like yeah see look English people they know it's real and I think it's a great opportunity for me to be able to talk about Welsh as a non-native Welsh speaker to understand its history, to understand its grammar, to basically put it in the context of a real language, which you know, I know, but a lot of people are yet to understand. Mm. This is certainly a call to the English, right, to work on attitudes, essentially. Say not just the English. I would say that there are other countries and other people who may not realise Welsh is a real language. So another example, I was in Nice recently and France was hosting the Rugby World Cup and they had pictures of the flags of the countries that were participating in the World Cup and it had hello in all of the languages that were native to those lands. So under England's flag, it said hello. Under the New Zealand flag, it had hello in Maori. Under the Welsh flag, it had English. I think that in many ways, while people might know Welsh exists as a language, they might not take it seriously, or they might just think that Welsh is a second language, that English is people's primary language, and that's just not the case. It's a real language, it's a living language, it's a language of resistance, it's a language of the people who deserve to have it recognised. I think it's a really, really good point. I think this is, yeah, something that we in linguistics may take for granted. And so we have to be aware of these opinions. I think this is a, a really, really nice point um, to end on, unfortunately. I think we do have to leave it there. No, I've I could talk loved... for ages. <laughs> well, we're just going to have to have you back. Well, we'll talk about something else, talk about Arabic or Yorkshire English, for Oh, example. I can talk about Yorkshire English. Wonderful. Yorkshire English. Well, that's, again, that's a, that deserves its own episode. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think... It'd be right we good, should... that would. Well, I'm looking forward to that already. I think that, yeah, just the passion and the commitment and the principles are just clear for everyone to hear. So I think this has been really good. I hope people listening have enjoyed this. I hope uh, to the Welsh people out there, this has been a fair and, and respectful discussion of these extremely weighty issues. For me now, there are only two final things left to do. The first one is a question, which is that if people would like to know more about you and your work, is there some way that people can find you on the good internet or if people can get in touch? Yes. So at the moment, if you go on the University of York website on the Department of Linguistics, you'll see PhD students. I will be listed there as Victoria Noble. I am in the process of making my own website. So until then, stay excited. I will be in your computers soon. 
Excellent. Okay. Well, I'll definitely check that out as well. And you yourself have mentioned that you're very interested and very committed to outreach, to academic outreach, and maybe not only a future website, future podcast too. Potentially one day I would like to do my own podcast, but I'd need to find guests to go on it. So who knows, maybe you can come on that one day. We will see. Oh, I'd hate that. I'd absolutely hate that. Oh, it'd be terrible. Um, So all that remains to say now is just thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me today and having this super conversation all about the Welsh language. Thank you for having me, or should I say, Dioch. As a final fun fact from me, I'd like to revisit a word that I vividly remember being my gateway into a long love of the historical study of the Welsh language. It's not a Welsh word, though. It's the English word... Welsh. As Victoria noted at the beginning, Welsh's own names for the country and the language are very different, Cymru and Cymraeg. The English terms are exonyms, names used outside of the Welsh-speaking community. Welsh and similar words are found across the Germanic languages, English being one of them. When Old English speakers first arrived in Britain, they used the term Welish for the Romano-British people already living there. This was because the term's core meaning was most likely Roman. The people living in southern Britain would have certainly still thought of themselves as within the Roman Empire. Because of this meaning, we find cognates of the word Welsh used for other ex-Roman or Romance-speaking parts of Europe. For example, there's Cornwall in southwest England, there's Wallonia, the French-speaking part of Belgium, there's the ancient region of Gaul, now France, And there's Wallachia in Romania, as well as a whole host of other words that reflect this outsider's term for something or someone Roman. For me, diving into this distinction between the exonym Wales and the endonym Cymru and all these connections across Europe was my linguistic way into an early medieval world of history, language and contact between different peoples. So, That's all for this episode of A Language I Love Is. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving the show a rating and recommending it widely. Every recommendation helps the show to find its audience. Thanks, of course, must go to my guest today, Victoria, and to you, dear language lover, for listening. Till the next time, then. Bye-bye.